Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Sunday, January 19th, 2014, episode number 50, Sticky Notes. Welcome everyone to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. This is Kevin England back with our 50th episode, proud of that milestone. And I have a lot to bring today, and I know just about every show I say that, but this one I really did debate whether I was going to split it in half because of so much to go. But you know what? Heck with it. Caution to the wind. Let's go. I got a nice, hot, steaming cup of hot chocolate sitting here next to me, and I am ready to go. In this episode, we're going to wing it. Yep, that's what I said. You know, sometimes I prepare notes. And I almost get to the point of writing a script. There's times when I present certain topics that require that amount of rigor. And they require me to have notes and follow a topic from beginning to end and bring some technical jibber-jabber. But today, that's not so much. I'm just going to cover a couple things and um, throw caution to the wind. I do have a new system I'm going to try out. I have a lot of concepts I want to bring, and I've created this fleet of sticky notes virtually on my computer, and I'm going to talk about the topics on the sticky notes and then expand upon them just off the cuff. So let's see how that goes today. An interesting approach to try. So to the agenda, spring lead-in. You know, spring is on our minds around here, so I'm going to share some recent discussions we've been having in our local circles about how to be prepared better than ever for spring. Wax purification. Charlie Ilsley is a friend of ours. He's a past president of the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association. And um, we were talking the other day about wax purification and he struck a couple nerves about how he does it and why mine failed. So I invited him in and we have a conversation recorded with him about his process that he's going through right now to clean up some wax that he has mistakes were made this is about planning for the beekeeping season and every year i come out strong with this idea that i'm going to do a really good job this year and recognize as always that mistakes were made in the last season or the seasons before that and how to fix this for the year upcoming. Roundtable, we got flower power. A quick correction from episode number 49. Don't blow. I'll explain that. And a couple other topics. So, I have my mug of hot chocolate. You can get yourself a frosty beverage, or if you're driving, I suggest a nice cup of tea for the road, because the beekeeper corner starts now. Local Hive Report, not much to report. The bees are flying. As of the other day, everything's in good shape. I'm a little bit short. If you've listened to past episodes, you know that uh, we got robbed. My fault. One of the spring things we're going to fix. And uh, I think I'm going to need to put just a little bit of feed on them to make sure that they make it through and are ready for spring here. So that's it. Uh, Sometime this week... If it gets warm, I'll check in on them, and if they need to be, I'll give them a little supplemental, but but they're in. They're ready to go, and so four hives with plans on many more coming up for the upcoming season, and if need be, we'll put a feed box on them and get them into this early season, which we're just about to talk about in a little bit here. 
So before I go too far, I know that uh, last episode I forgot to do this, so let me get this out of the way. Interested in finding show notes about the things we talk about, I'll reference some items that we'll post through the episode. You can go to our website, www.bkcorner.org. You could also go to bkcorner.com. Doesn't matter which one you use. You could send a note to me, kevin at bkcorner.org, if you want to uh, share any insights you have or ask for comments, corrections to anything that we're talking about here. You can call and leave a message, 609-460-4037 is our phone number. And uh, requisite plug for our Facebook page, facebook.com slash beekeeperscorner. You can check that out. Uh, we post some articles between episodes and other insights. And if you want to know when the latest episode is posted, if you subscribe to that, we'll always kind of put when an episode is posted about the day after it's out there. So, so with that, let's jump right into segment number one. For segment number one, I want to talk on the topic of spring management. Our Beekeepers Association meeting for January is coming up, and we've been having a lot of discussions lately about what to talk about. And it seems every year we talk about similarly the same strategy for spring, which is to reverse the boxes. The premise behind this is that the bees started in the bottom in the fall, and through the winter they have moved up against the honey dome. And depending on how much stores, they're either against the lid or nestled up underneath the dome. And if you take the deep box that's in the top and put it in the bottom, that will allow for them to graduate up and create room for the spring. Fact of the matter is, if you're running two boxes, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. And what you end up doing is moving brood frames to the bottom, but the honey frames are going to get situated over top. And it's counterintuitive to some of the understandings about how a hive works, especially in the winter. So if you think of it this way, they're in the bottom through the winter and they come up against the honey dome. They're going to go up through that honey until they're done consuming honey for what they need to make spring bees. There's an interesting article in a book I read talking about when people insert space into the brood chamber in anticipation of spring and to thwart swarming. Now, why would this work and what's the concept? Well, one of the people who's been talking about this a long time is Walter Wright, and he talks about checkerboarding. And the principle of this is and I'm going to try and describe it, and again, I'm winging it, so let's see if I can get this right. The bees are in the bottom box, and they're spreading up. As the January time frame comes to a close, February, March, April, the queen starts to lay again. And her objective, of course, is to get the workforce and or the population of bees to a swarming stance. So she's going to create a lot of bees, and for that, she's going to need a lot of stores. In the case of springtime, this is probably when they consume the most honey and resources that they have, and of course, in early spring, you start to see them foraging for pollen like crazy so that they can take care of their brood. 
So the queen, she knows what she's doing. She's going to lay eggs and lay eggs and lay eggs. And at some point, if there's a lot of honey up above, she's going to run out of room. And in order to feed these bees and to feed the workers, they're going to start eating honey above them and around them to make more room for the queen to lay. Now, how much honey will they eat? Well, they're always going to leave some form of a reserve. They'll never starve the colony. But think what their objective is. They have to make two swaths of bees. One that they're going to leave behind and one that's going to be allowed to swarm and go off and prosper. So they're eating honey to the point where they have to stop because they're going to leave honey for whoever's left behind. And then the nectar flow comes and they start to backfill the entire space. Part of the backfill side effect is that the queen is going to run out of places to lay because now the nectar's coming in and they're filling back through the brood chamber. So you have a combination of backfill and you have congestion with bees and you have a queen that's not laying and she's slimming down and all the conditions are right for them to start swarms in motion. So Walter Wright has an interesting passage on this where he indicates it's not the congestion that causes the swarm. The congestion is a byproduct of getting to a swarming population. That's a fascinating twist on the concept. So one of the things to think of is we're all looking for queen cups at this time of year. And if you have queen cups, you know that a swarm is imminent. Some of the literature indicates that the better way to look at this is when do they start making drones? Because of the fact that they're starting to make drones in the premise of fertilizing a queen. And they make drones way before they start capping queen cells because it takes longer to make a drone than it does a queen. So if you think about this, we're always in the prospect of January, it's too cold, February, too cold, March, they're not flying, maybe they'll get some days towards the end, but the fact of the matter is, the onslaught for spring is going on right now as we speak. So one of the things we're discussing is, we've always said, don't break the seals in the hive. But when you get a warm day, is it to your advantage to take an empty box with comb, of course, not foundation, Warm it up, get it to temperature, 70, 80 degrees, break the seal between the brood chamber and underneath the honeydew and create a place for the queen to lay. This is going to do a couple things. If that queen is ready to go, she'll keep laying eggs and she's going to make a massive workforce. Still to the point where they could swarm, but it is certainly going to relieve that pressure. And then if you keep an eye on things, you can continue to add brood chamber underneath and eventually honey supers underneath and thwart the whole swarming thing altogether. Now, Walter Wright, I think, indicates that three things will happen. One, they're going to swarm. Two, they're going to try to swarm and they're going to get that whole build up and they understand that they want to swarm, but they're going to come to a point of no return. If you think about the what the queen and the colony is trying to do they have two objectives and they want to get to the point where they're going to swarm but sometimes they just fail to realize that and then they go into survival mode which means they give up for this year and they go into a posture to overwinter for next year and try it again 
and then the other prospect of this is they swarm and then they swarm and after swarm and after swarm so it's an interesting philosophy and i think that's as far as i want to go i just wanted to wet your whistle a little bit about this but one of the things that is emphasized by walter wright is maintaining empty comb and i'm quoting him at the top cannot be overemphasized the recommended two shallows of comb is to cover that unexpected period when mild weather and field forage come together to generate a spurt in overhead storing. Don't let them fill it to the top if swarm invention, if swarm prevention is important to you. So what he's saying is in that build up to spring, make sure they always have empty space over top of the brood chamber and you could potentially thwart swarming. Now Walter indicates that he is successful at preventing swarms and he only wished that the common literature and scientists would catch up to him. I have to say, after looking at what he's doing, I agree. <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced. If you follow the math and the logic, it makes complete sense. So I'll let you be the judge of that. I'm going to provide a link in our show notes to a number of articles that he wrote. And he also provides, if you contact his son-in-law, I believe it is, a manuscript, some 60 pages long I believe it is that will explain the whole process and how he goes about his spring and summer management so look for our show notes at bkcorner.org this is episode number 50 for segment number two I recently as I said in the opening had a chance to speak with Charles Ilsley about something he was working on. He had a vat of wax that he was looking at purifying. And he mentioned to me how he went about it, and I thought it was really fascinating. So we picked up the phone yesterday and recorded a 40-minute piece where he was talking about it. Charles is really knowledgeable on the subject. He has some industry background on it. And uh, rather than go into what we talked about, I'll let you go here. One of the things to note is this is a recorded conversation, so the phone call is a little bit or the recording of it is a little bit soft, but I think it's good enough quality, and I think you're really going to enjoy that. So here's Charles Ilsley with Wax Rendering. Charlie and I were talking about an upcoming meeting and had the opportunity to uh, discuss what he was up to, and he was talking about rendering wax. And after two minutes of listening to what Charlie was talking about, it became fairly evident that uh, he had a method that was better than what I had been doing before. And uh, Charlie, you and I had this conversation about let's record this so we could capture it for posterity. Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner podcast. All right. Well, thanks for having me, Kevin. And uh, we had a great adventure today with this process. Um, as I indicated, I have a, a lot of work experience rendering and, and also you know, purifying fatty acid oils. And so as a consequence, the beeswax is a, a kind, a light kind of filtration. And um, so uh, I won't try to, you know, kill everybody with the chemical description or the physical description of what's going on and try to keep it simple for everybody um, and do it um, basically based upon references that, you know, um, you know, I came up with as I decided, you know, a few days ago to make Landy and the North Jersey, the New Jersey beekeepers, a, uh, a honey, a honey 
uh, beeswax and picture entries for our upcoming um, meeting. So uh, here we go. Um, so, so Charlie, by trade, you're an engineer and you understand all these chemical things. And you and I had this conversation. And for me, I've tried to render beeswax and I did it in a very simple manner. And the difficulty was that the candles that I made popped, sizzled, didn't burn right. And what I've come to discover is that I didn't filter them properly. And what you had said to me is, as you were rendering your wax, you applied a method where you were taking the moisture out and filtering it better. And you and I can have this conversation here about how to go about that. So why don't you take us through the process? Uh, first off, you're starting with capping wax, right, in a bag and and the expectation is is that you're going to try and separate the wax from whatever else is in that bag. Correct. And that that capping bag. Well, I started out with cappings that were water water rinsed, and the water rinsing process actually removes a lot of uh, solubles. And I guess classically, the solubles would be honey and dirt and things that wash off with water. So that's what we mean by that. So we want to wash out as much sugar and honey as we possibly can. And then we're left with dried cappings, of course, without melting them. We do it with cool, with cool water and uh, let them dry. And so basically I started out with about a pound to one and a half pounds of cappings. And um, what I did was I basically got all my wife's uh, kitchen utensils together, except for I went out and bought pots and pans necessary and we're given a double boiler because the double boiler will come in very important in the uh, second phase of this process the first phase we can reference an article that was on the internet by david cushman and he talks about melting wax now the melting process um, is one that actually attempts to remove as much of the water uh, dissolvable material as possible. So what we do is uh, we go with about in an eight quart uh, pan. We uh, try to get about two to two and a half inches of water in there, and it just so happens that that's about ten cups of water in your standard eight cup or eight quart uh, classic pa uh, saucepan. So you're doing this right on the stove. Right on the stove, but. Uh, of course, with no flames, because we're going to circle back and say that what we're doing here is the cappings are extremely um, combustible material. So if they come into contact with a, a lit flame, the cappings will catch on fire. And if there's a lot of them there, the flame will, ex you know, it'll extend very quickly. So um, we put the water, and then another thing that we uh, learned by referencing this article. This is something I know from my trade that, you know, acidifying the water will help in removing um, water uh, from the melted wax. That's one thing it will do, and it will also aid in the removal of, uh, of the honey and the sugars and so forth and so on that will, you know, um, accumulate in a, in a um, little way, a small way, in the wax after it's melted. So what we want to do is try to kill as many birds as we we can with the first extraction. So what happens... So in the setup, you have a large pot with 10 cups of water, and how much vinegar did you put in? Okay. Uh, it's uh, three and one-third 
tablespoons of vinegar, which equals 10 teaspoons, uh, three and a third tablespoons of just regular vinegar. I use white and, um, and put it in there. So the, you know, the, um, the mixture looked pretty clear. It was a clear. And, and then the next thing I did was, and this is the experiment right here. What I did was I got a, uh, some, uh, a bolt of, um, a cheesecloth and I made a double fold of that enough to hold one and a quarter pounds of cappings. And, uh, then I tied it at the top and made a bag because as you can imagine, what would happen is if you, uh, overlap the, the cheesecloth over the top of the pot and it got into contact with the flame, you'd have a hazard. So everywhere you go with this process on the stovetop, you've got a flame hazard. And it simply wouldn't do if uh, mom came home and found her kitchen smoked <laughs> up fire. and the cabinets burned <laughs> out. So uh, you have to be careful. All right. So anyway, I had a fire extinguisher handy, but um, it went along quite well and there was no problems. So the next thing that happened was I got a rubber band and tied it shut. And that bag, really nice big bag, fit right in there. And what I observed immediately was that the bag collapsed in the water as it heated up. And um, the boiling time, surprisingly enough, with reference to the article, Cushman's writes a very complete article, a good description, was about um, once it boils, do not, do not boil it violently. And the other part is do not overboil it. So just let it go for about five or six minutes. And what you'll find yourself doing is, Tried to find a uh, a utensil to push the cheesecloth bag down into the water with, so you can get as much immersion as possible. Because what what happens here is that the wax migrates out of the bag, and the um, uh, insect parts and chitin and other things that you know come from the inside of the hive stay inside the bag. That was my observation. It worked perfectly, and incidentally. There's quite a lot of solids involved in this process. Like the cappings, one, one and a half pounds of cappings are not going to yield a pound of wax at all. They're going to leave, leave you with probably about between a half a pound and three quarters of a pound of really nice wax. Oh, that's interesting. I, I would yeah. have thought it would have been more than that. So you dunk the bag, you heated it up, the water boils at 212, wax melts at what, one? 180 somewhere in between right yeah underneath it so yeah. the wax starts it it it's it dissolves into the water and it's floating around in there no it doesn't dissolve in the water there's no miscibility of the wax in the water or if it is miscible it's microscopically miscible it just really doesn't mix and another thing that happens is when you add the um uh, household acid like uh vinegar which is acetic acid increases the density somewhat. So the oil is even more uh, uh, apt not to become miscible at all. So it, what it'll do is facilitate a nice, clean separation, provided that there's not a lot of extraneous uh, impurities in the wax. So this process here now is called a water extraction, really. And what is happening is you're out to remove as much a much of the water dissolvable material from the wax as you can on the first pass. Now, 
those people who are schooled in extractions know that you have to use several extractions to get the most of what you're looking for in pure form. So the first extraction is what I did today. Um, the process then goes further, and what it says is that once this boiling process goes for five or six minutes, what you want to do is monitor and throttle back on your uh, heat so that the, um, the boiling rate is not extremely high. What happens is, is that the contents of the pot will expand, and incidentally, you're not supposed to have a lid on it. And once this process begins, you're not supposed to take your eyes off of it because if it splashes over and goes on the stove and a lot of wax winds up on the flame, you're going to extend the flame and you're yeah. going to have a fire. So, so you boiled it to the point where the wax dissolved out of the bag. And that, that process went on for about, first off, it takes a little while for it to heat up and come to a boil. Once it comes to a boil, go for five to seven minutes, and then then turn it off. And are you taking the bag out of the water solution? Yeah, once that happens, I remove the bag and just let it drip as much as possible right in. And so then I made an observation. All right, there, there, a lot of my wax, a lot of the wax. I'm sitting here looking at this thing. It, it is a wick beyond compare. And now it's completely coated with wax. So uh, before you remove the bag, you have to turn the flame off. Because if that thing falls down, the next thing you know, you will have a fire. So that thing was coated with pure yellow wax, which has made my, uh, that made my day to start with. And then I started thinking, wow, with all the surface area of that cheesecloth, I lost a lot of wax. Yeah. So that's one of the uh, drawbacks of using cheesecloth. And then um, one of But you um, could use other materials, right, Charlie? You could use um, uh, nylon or... Yes, exactly. And, and there's just quite a few different things I want to try now. So this is what... When you, when you pulled that bag out, did you squeeze the bag at all to try and exude any wax out of it? or? Uh, yeah, get this. I grabbed my wife's soup spoon and she started pressing it. And she came over and grabbed it. <laughs> <laughs> it was coated with wax already. It instantly coated with wax and crystallized with beeswax all over the, the, soup, the soup ladle. Okay? And so then that was taken away, and she's over there cleaning all the wax <laughs> off of it. All right. So that part, everything that you utilize, you have to think through ahead of time. Organize your work and make wax, sure. Right? Because everything is going to be sacrificed, including the pot, because the pot, it becomes coated. It has a little bit of wax here and there, and it's nearly impossible to remove it. Okay. That's so, typical of uh, wax activities if you're trying to make cosmetics or anything like that. They always tell you you should have your dedicated blender, your dedicated pots, pans, spoons, things like that, right? So that is a good tip for this. So then what? You... You pull the bag out. Now you have water and wax mixed together, yeah. and it's cooling off. I would right. assume the wax is going to float. The wax will indeed. What, what, what happens is a natural separation occurs, right? And then the next thing you're going to see is to your horror that, well, actually, another thing I did was um, I added a couple of full-size cups of uh, just pure cappings. 
because here is the other procedures that I've seen on the Internet, and they would include not using that filter bag that I discussed. And the filter bag, all right, we'll, we'll go back to that because I'll contrast the two. But I put a couple of bags of, uh, a couple of cups of the, uh, the cappings in, and, uh, um, and they faithfully melted. I boiled it and then turned it off, and then I made some observations. Because initially, with the filter bag, there was, n- there was not the heavy load of, um. Wait, so you made two batches just to be clear what you did? No, what I did was I crammed two experiments into one. No, not and, supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, but still, the idea was it was very clear at the end of that that there was not a lot of extraneous matter in the uh, in the wax. It was just sitting there. Um, it also is very decept. It's deceptive in that the thickness is difficult to judge. So what you got to do is know how much water you put in there to start with. And then, with a ruler on the outside of the pot, you can measure where, you know, the top of the liquid is. That'll give you a better idea of what your liquid wax level is. And uh, the various densities involved is pretty simple. It's about eight-tenths um, of an inch is the same as one inch of the water. So here, if you have about two-and-a-half inches of water... And then the pot level rose as much as it did. Well, there you are. But there's one complexing thing there is all the uh, cats and dogs that wind up in there that you're trying to remove. So here's what I learned by mixing the two. The cappings that you put in without any kind of filtration prior, what they'll do is they will carry a lot of extra stuff into the extraction that you don't want. Okay. and that'll overburden the primary water wash. And that's what we want to call this. It's a water extraction or a water wash. And the acid in there will facilitate the separation between the oil or the wax and the water and make a clear boundary or else, you know, the fuzzy layer in between will not, the solids will not so readily adhere to the bottom level of the solid wax once it cools. Now, that's something that the only way I would know that is if I've done it a million times before. So this is what one of the outcomes is going to be. The other thing it does is the acid, when it comes to B parts and so forth, makes them a little more amorphous, and it tears them up. And so what that does is that separates them from the wax. And so it's altogether a better process and it makes for a better a better clarification step. So, so let me ask you this. Yeah. I, I need a conclusion, but wait. When when you uh, when you looked in the cheesecloth, did you find anything inside the cheesecloth that got filtered out? Absolutely. What it looked like was like a dead lobster skeleton. It was just loaded with chitin, hairs, bee parts, you name it. Okay. It was loaded, and it's to me, it's amazing that there was so much that was in supposedly water-washed campings. It really came out a little on the hairy side. So, if someone was going to do this, you would recommend they use the filtration. You know, I, I'm familiar with cooking where people put.
spices and stuff in a thing called a bouquet garnet, right? And they put it inside their soup. And then you pull it out later so nobody has to eat pods. And... Well, this is one grand, uh, a bigger model. That's what I can tell you. And that's a perfect analogy. And so exactly what I was thinking the whole time, but what I want to experiment with is different kinds of, uh, of bags that give uh, better access for the oil to migrate out of the bag. I mean, the other thing to think about is that, that um, you know, it's the same thing if you're trying to filter honey for a honey show. You, you tend to get uh, particles of the cheesecloth in your honey, and that shows up, right? So using people use um, different substrates to filter, whether it's metal mesh filters or they use pantyhose because it doesn't, the fibers don't come out of it, right? Exactly. That's the tried, true tech technique, but we all start somewhere. Now, cheesecloth, in my case here, um, is what, you know, I was references, referencing this procedure. So after every grand experiment like this, I always try to dissect what happened. Now, but I always knew that what I was going to do here is just understand that this is a primary water wash that's meant to remove a lot of uh, materials other than the wax. And a lot of those are sugars. A lot of those things will interfere with your burning process for wax if you want to use it for candles. Now, if you're going to make a nice mold and so forth, Bill, those things are going to take, um, they have a deleterious effect on the quality of the wax from every angle. You know, if you're going to make lip balm or do any of that stuff with it, you got to clean it up. Yeah. This is clearly the first step. Now, the second step um, from the melting the wax. So wait, before you go there. Mm -hmm. So just in summary, the way you did this is you collected the wax, you put it in a cheesecloth. You put it in water, which had vinegar in it, and um, you boiled it for five to six minutes. You took the cheesecloth out, and you let it cool. And then when you were done, the wax collected on top of the water, and you would just cut it off and pull it out, let it dry off. And what I've seen, I've seen this process before uh, in videos, and the bottom of the wax tend to, tends to have, if there is anything that gets through, the bottom of the wax tends to be where that stuff collects. And I've seen people take the cake, that's the way I'll describe it, it's like a flat pie plate almost, turn it over and scrape that bottom layer off to try and remove some of that. And then you would go to your next step, which you're about to describe, which is an additional filtration step. Do I have that right? Yeah, for the most part, you got it pretty well. You nailed it. Um, and then what they do is they shave it with a sharp knife and collect all that, and then they you, they render, they take that and render it again. Now, what some people will do is do a second water extraction on that, depending upon what kind of load they have in the cake, in that cake that's left over. Um, you're supposed to let this thing sit for a good long time compared to what you just did, the boiling in the five or six minute, um, you know, just let it boil for five or six minutes. Then you let it sit for 24 hours. And what that does is that allows the water to get extra cold. Mm -hmm. And as the water gets cold, it gets more dense, and that exaggerates the... Uh, separation between the wax and then what happens is finally as it's all cooled 
the wax will shrink away from the uh, container that it's in the vessel, yeah. and that will allow you just to really pull it all out. And that's what you're after. And then the next thing that you do is you take that water and you do not pour it down the drain because it will clog the drain immediately. And then the next thing you do is you take the water out and you put it um, in the um, in the wood because it's perfect compost and readily biodegrades. There's no problem with it. Oh, that's a good point. If you pour it down your drain as it has any waxy residue, it's going to coat your pipes and clog your septic system if you have that or... Yeah, and everything else that goes down there, too, like the bee parts and, you know, that sort of thing. So it's a it's an excellent uh, uh, thing to remember that what you do is you sit down and you um, make sure that you make a, a references, you research what you do, and know what you're doing before, you, you know, you really get started. And where you're going to put all the components, remembering that wax will stick to a um, the warm liquid wax will immediately freeze on any decent piece of kitchen utensil that you have. It's very difficult to remove. Yeah. So then the next thing is, the next part of the process is called filtration. Now, this is where, you know, you can really get creative, and that's why I'm doing it the way I'm doing it, because I may do another water extraction, which will be the same thing all over again, so by the time I get to the filtration stage, it may be extracted two or three times. Then I have a double boiler that was given to me. It's an old, very old double boiler. Now, the double boiler is a, um, a vessel which contains a chamber which, you know, you can fill up with water. And then you put, you break your honey, uh, your um, wax up, and you remove any parts that you can shave it off, and then what you do is you um, you crack up the wax and put it in the double boiler, and then you melt it, okay? And that, that melt should go around 170, 175 degrees. And also, the water in that chamber will be slightly above 212 degrees, so you have to be careful. Throttle back the heat, and once it's boiling, do not let it go and, you know, blow steam out. What you want it to do is just uh, you back off the heat and just let it bubble, right? And then you melt your wax, and that wilt, that melted wax, the next step, you want to go through a, a paper filtration because uh, one, of the, one, a couple, one of a couple of things is happening at that point. Your, your primary goal is to separate the residuals in the, um, in the process that includes the insolubles, um, chitin and so forth from the bees, and then any dirt and the rest, because you're not going to get it all on the first try, and or the second, but you'll be in the in the 95 to 99 percent zone. And so you want to migrate it further on up and get it to the point where you're ready for show. So then the next thing you do is you put it through paper. Now ser a serious couple of filtrations through. Um, you know, um, paper towel, flute the paper towel and make a bed and filter the wax right through it. But it's got to be done warm because you got to bear in mind as the stuff will cool off, it'll, it will definitely clog your filter and that'll be the end of the process. So unless you want, you know, develop a mass of wax coated paper towel, you have to 
take your time and feel your way with this thing so that it filters through adequately. Now, people do use all kinds of tight weave, and here is a real suggestion. This is where we go to the uh, tighter weaves, and uh, some people use um, steel mesh filters and so forth, and they become very beneficial at this point because the waste is minimized that way. So once you uh, go through and um, take your um, same filter you would use in the process of cleaning your um, wax in the honey filtration stage, use the same you know, high-grade, maybe 100, 200 mesh screen and put your liquid wax right through it. And or put a paper towel on top of that and go right through the paper towel on that right through. And then she'll clean up nice and then boiling water will be the cleanup for your, um, you know, your mesh. And that'll clean that or you can go through a screen, paper towel, nylon uh, pantyhose that you can buy at the store. All those are very, very interesting, very usable ways. But the key here is Use what you want to throw away, and the easy, the best, best item is something that's cheap, and you can discard at the end of the process. It has minimized the waste in the process as well. So, so in this, you, the first one you did a water wash, and now you're doing a dry, basically filtration through something. And you know, one of the things, if you're using paper towels, just take those paper towels and use in your smoker. That's what a lot of people suggest with that. They make excellent smoker starters. Oh, yeah, without without a doubt, because that material will light up like their Or fireplace. You got a fireplace? Yeah, fire starter. Exactly. Yeah, and it'll work outdoors because it's wax. It doesn't matter if it's wet or whatever. It, it should burn. So you filtered it now through paper, through metal filter. And one of the other things I know is if you use a metal filter and it gets clogged, just take it and set it down inside the double boiler and let the mac wax, I'm having trouble with that today, mm-hmm. let the wax melt and uh, then you can continue your process that way too. So now you've filtered it again, is there another step? Oh yes, there's always, you can, you know, you can always go and then the, um, uh, take it to the point where you're using other elements, other additives, for example, like diatomaceous earth, and or activated carbon. Um, and so my readings on that so far is that it really doesn't affect the, uh, the color, but I haven't tried that. I haven't gotten that far yet. And um, I don't really know because this is the first time I ever did it, but my work experience with oils is um, the reds and the yellows in color are removed by the activated carbon and so forth. What I can say is we always used to uh, use diatomaceous earth to coat our frames, and that would be for the huge filters. These filters are heated and so forth, and so that the oils go through and they're above the solidification point for the, uh, the material. So it will flow right through the filter without any trouble at all. And those particles are there to re- facilitate removal of solids insoluble solids like the exoskeletons of bees, antenna, wings, and so forth and so on. So so in this context, you would have some vessel with diatomaceous earth in it, the same stuff you use to filter a swimming pool, and you pour this through, 
and the diatomaceous earth would catch any detritus that, that is not part of the wax, and the wax would run through, and you'd really get it filtered. Correct. Now, um, and then that the diatomaceous earth is great for removing bad odor and also water-soluble compounds. That will really facilitate that process. Um, and then the activated carbon. Carbon is really good at, at absorbing color bodies, as we call them. And they are also water solubles, and there would be aldehydes and ketones, which are compounds that very much, very well occur in any environment where there's a lot of sugars around. And so, what do we got? Where are we coming from? We're coming from honey. And then honey is the yeah. primary contaminant here. We want to get it away. And then sugars, simple sugars that are a byproduct. When you when you take sucrose and make bee candy, you put vinegar in the water, and what that does is split the uh, the disaccharide sucrose right into the fructose and the glucose. So that's simple sugars right there. Well, the acid will keep on working on uh, those hexoses and really cause them to open up as well. So, that's so, right. so in this context. You've done a water wash. You've done a dry filter. Now you're pouring it through this. You've got some squeaky clean wax. And, you know, we started with cappings in your discussion. Cappings are the things that you cut off. Most of the time they're clean. The bees do walk on them. It depends on how old they are and where you got them from. But there are times when you could do this filtration system with really nasty old funky comb that you got because that's good wax and you'll separate the wax completely out of it. And the purpose of this, maybe we should have started this discussion with that, is if you build a candle, a candle will wick through, the, the wax will melt and wick through the wick to the, make the flame. And any debris that you have in the wax clogs the pores of the candle and stops it from burning. And the other thing is, as any of that sugars in whatever that's inside the wax comes to the candle and starts to burn, it starts to pop and snap, and you don't get a good, clean burn. So doing this is, is worth the effort, right, Charlie? Absolutely. And see, what happens is what, the, 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 the water, what you're doing is, uh, the, the key point is the boiler, the double boiler part, um, it should be held on the double boiler for a period of time, you know, depending upon the volume of wax you have, you know. So what do you got to do? What you're trying, your objective there is if um, you see any boiling of water out of that wax oil, what, it, what is that? But that's just residual water from your process. But see, the reason why we want to use a long cooling time is because it, it's a slow phase change to the oil or the wax from the liquid phase back into the solid. And in the process, a lot of water is squeezed out of the product. Wow. See, that's one of the key points there. And then the second point is the double boiler allows you to really refine it even further. And then when you pour it through diatomaceous earth, diatomaceous earth will trap water too. That'll pull it right out because diatomaceous earth has got a tremendous... Uh, porous system and molecules migrate in and they get lost inside and that's it for them. And then you filter it out right away, there goes the water. And then the uh, carbon, the carbon is there any for any color bodies that are around. You polish it with that, 
Now you're gone to parts unknown with your purification, and if there's deleterious odor and so forth, that'll be removed. But so far, we haven't touched the uh, beautiful aroma of native bee wax. The only way you can do that is burn it. So when, you, when you're done with this process, you're left with the wax that probably has a color. And one of the things I know is it's either going to be white from capping, but it won't be pure white. And if you're using not capping wax, but other maybe brood comb wax or whatever, it might have a yellow tint to it. Beekeepers love and people love beeswax that is yellow in color. But if you wanted it pure white, you could take whatever wax you have and put it out in the sun. And over time, it will bleach it white, white, right? So you and I were talking earlier about when you make white candles for the Pope, you want it to be white, not yellow. That's how they do it. They literally took them out and put them in the sun. And I guess the process that you described, the first one, the wash part, once you take that wax out, of course, it's been in contact with water. You're going to let it dry to bone dry as much as you can before you go to the double boiler part, yes? That's correct. What I'm going to do tomorrow is, well, actually what I'm doing right now is I'm standing here looking at this. And um, what I have got is a very light yellow, not golden yellow. It's like, it almost looks like um, oleomargarine from the store. It is uh, that yellow, and it, it is a nice smell. But one of the problems is it still has a lot of solids in it. So what I want to do is remove that and shave that off as much as possible and then um, and see what's on the bottom of this thing around the water and remove that water and take it out in the backyard and get rid of it and then clean the pot off, which would entail, in this case, scraping it clean and then uh, wiping it with a cloth and as best I can and then starting over again. This time, um, and what was your question again, Kevin? No, I, I was just kind of uh, commenting on that. You know what, Charlie, I'm... I could tell you that I, I've made candles in the past and did not do this, as I said in the opening, and they, they didn't work. So I'm curious to see your outputs and see how well your wax burns. And, you know, the wick has as much as the purity of the wax to do with it. The bigger the wick, the bigger the burn pattern. If you're trying to get large, flat candles and you want it to burn all the way across, you have to right-size the wick. Correct. And that's a whole theory, and that's a different subject in the candle-making process, but it's ever as much important as having the right material to start with. You've got to start with everything designed in the right way. And for the, in the case of beeswax, you know, almost a lost art making good candles, you know. It is a process, and this is something that what we're doing right now is rediscovering the wheel. And... and Rightfully so, because we've lost the technology with time. It's amazing what happens. But my um, initial product here is um, a nice, creamy texture. Um, of course, the water is loaded with all kinds of stuff. It's dark. The water's dark, but the wax is a beautiful, uh, clean, creamy white yellow. And I'm told that the good beeswax is golden yellow. So mine is a little bit light in this regard, but it's also very, um, there's no, there's no sign of surface tension on this and it, it has solidified quite smoothly and its texture is very uniform.
Well, I tell you, um, this has been really insightful. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on here and, and tell us about this. You mentioned Dave Cushman. We've referred to that a lot on the podcast. I'll give the URL here, and we'll also provide one in the show notes. You can go to the website, which is www.dave-cushman.net. And Dave Cushman, he passed away February 22nd, 2011. He was a beekeeper out of the UK, and he just has a treasure trove of different beekeeping subjects. And Charlie, you said um, the process by which you referenced is on that website, so we'll provide a link to that. And thanks to Dave and, and the folks who, uh, I think it's Roger Patterson or someone else that is maintaining that um, as an archive for beekeepers to reference. That's excellent. And, and, and indeed, you know, it did reference the acid portion, which is stuff that, you know, really I knew from my trade. Now, the average beekeeper, you know, is not a, uh, no one had ever worked in a fatty acid factory, okay? And so as a consequence, they would never know this, and it's very important in the process, I believe. So yeah. here we are. And I appreciate my uh, uh, opportunity here to make a useful input. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. I appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, keep me posted on how you make out. And maybe you could flip me one of those candles. I could try it out and come back to the podcast. So, great. Thanks, Charlie. All right. Be well. Bye-bye. So there you have it, a discussion with Charles Isley. Charlie, um... He's about as passionate as you can get about beekeeping, every facet of it, from his queens to his nukes to his hives to his honey harvesting to, as you heard, the wax and other facets of it. Uh, always willing to lend a hand and uh, really enjoy having uh, conversations with Charlie about beekeeping. He's always got something going on. So looking forward to hearing how he makes out with his wax, and uh, we'll put a couple candles on the table and show the before and after of how to do that and uh, we'll keep you posted as he makes his progress we'll be talking to him over the weeks so thanks again uh, Charlie for coming in and let's close out this segment again we'll leave you links on our website bkcorner.org and uh, you can look for episode 50 for the show notes over to Dave Cushman for segment number three I wanted to talk about a book I'm just just close to being finished with it's called the art and adventure of beekeeping by ormond and harry ab a e b i is how you spell the last name this book was recommended by gary at kiwi mana another podcaster and uh you could check him out i've always listened to gary's podcast and uh he and margaret are recording over there all the time it's kiwi mana dot co dot nz or nz as they say over there uh coming from new zealand so gary recommended this book and i purchased it used it looks like it was written in 1975 the tagline on the book is 404 pounds of honey from a single hive guinness book of records i didn't know what to expect when i read this but i was interested in the spring supering graphic that i found about partway through um, germane to the topics that we've been covering on this episode there were juicy tidbits peppered all through the book 
And I'll kind of speak about them in no particular order here, but these are things that I found interesting, things that I knew when they expanded on, or things, just observations. Um, You have to picture this book as you've got the ability to talk to somebody who's kept bees for a long, long time, and they tell a lot of stories. And you always find information and stories, things that they learned. And I'm always listening to people who are always with the bees, And it appears that this person spent, persons, spent a considerable amount of time with their bees and their insights are invaluable in that context. And I always find that to be the case with somebody who spends so much time with bees that they can tell you things from practical experience. So let me see if I can hit this. The first one was the point of uh, most excitement for me about this book. You heard in my spring opening talking about how to super. And when you get to the springtime, you have this scheme where you're trying to increase above the brood chamber, but underneath the honeydome. In this case, their scheme went this way. And I'm going to read this. And uh, I read this on my previous podcast with Jason Bruns, and I'm going to expand upon it here. Slip the number two super under number one. So they start with, I'm presuming, one or two deeps, and they have a medium honey super on top. Slip number two super under number one. That's the one they overwintered with. Slip the number three super between number one and number two. So what they're doing here is they're increasing the brood chamber, and then they're slipping another one underneath. Slip number four under number three, but above number two. My picture here is that they're sliding it underneath where the brood chamber is. Sorry, underneath the honeydome, but above the brood chamber. So what they continue to do systematically is first they make room for the brood, and then they make room for the honey. And they, the way I envision is they keep alternating here. So let me go back and run through this, and maybe you could picture it. So I'm going to start from scratch again. A super scheme is what I refer to this as. You have two boxes and a honey super from what I can gather on what I read. So here goes. Slip the number two super under the number one super, the one that they overwintered with. Slip the number three super between number one and number two. Slip number four under number three, but above number two. Slip number five right above the brood chamber and under all others. Slip number six under number two. Slip number seven under number two and above number five. So in that sequence events, I want to go right in the middle there and say slip number five right above the brood chamber and under all others. A lot of people may not like this idea because If they start to fill that honey on the top, you're lifting heavy boxes off and putting things in the middle. But going back to our lesson from Walter Wright, if you can continue to increase that space between the dome and the brood chamber, the queen will continue to build brood throughout. So anyway, this is the super scheme that was in there. There's actually a diagram in this book. I'm not going to scan it because I think that's a copyright difficulty and I don't think I've ever encountered it on the web but um, you can rewind the tape here and listen to that and draw yourself a mental note or literally a picture on this interesting commentary on the way they do this 
So next topic is about feeding bees. Feeding is, according to them, a ramp to robbing. And the other thing that I said, and I'm about to say, and mistakes were made, one of the difficulties I had this year was the robbing situation that I've never encountered before. I've had robbing in my apiary, don't get me wrong, but this year it was rampant and they just totally decimated my hives and my fall nectar flow. So what he's saying is, and I'll combine two tips at once, during the fall they literally closed the entrance of their hives. It was very fascinating. They had these robber cleats that they used. The full width one was 16 inches. So that's the width of the bottom board. They had a 14 and a half inch one, a 10 inch one, a 6 inch one, a 3 inch one, and then they had a 1 half by 3 eighths. So wait, let me be very clear about this. This is how big the opening is that the bees have to work with. So the full width is 16 inches, and at a certain period of time when they start to choke it down, they take it to 14 and a half. And the way they did was they put two little spacers on both sides of the opening. And then they took it down to 10 inches. So if it was 16 inches, and they closed it to 10, they put a 3 inch and a 3 inch on both sides. Are you following me? Then they took it down to 6 inches, so they went 5 inch and 5 inch on both sides. Then they took it down to three inches. And then if it was absolutely severe, all they left them was a half inch by a three-eighths inch opening. Pretty much just one bee can pass. Fascinating. And you have to wonder, when they talk about bees living in a tree, they, they start with this little tiny hole, and that's all they have. We give them the Taj Mahal when they have this big, huge opening in the front for them to do. And in the fall... If you think about the way a hive works, they get to the end of summer, they get to the nectar flow in the fall if they have one, and the queen starts to shut down in preparation for winter. Less bees in the hive, getting the colder days, they start to cluster, and they are subject to robbing. So I will tell you, mistakes were made this year by me. I'm combining segment number four with this segment number three. I'm going to use robber techniques next year. Soon as that nectar flow is done in the fall, I'm going to start closing my hives down. And then again, feeding the bees, even doing your late, if you're late in the concept of putting your honey supers out, for example, to get them cleaned up after you've done an extraction, if there's no honey flow and you're putting these out, you're you're basically creating this aroma and enticement to get them started, and then once they start, they're going to go for other targets. And I had this uh, conversation with somebody recently. If you've ever harvested a box of honey and coming back the next day in your garage, I have a garage, so bear with me in my example, you could smell that so strong. You smell the comb, you smell the sugar, you smell it. You smell it, and for days it's like that until it kind of dries out. Well, put these out in your yard, and you're creating a horde of potential robbers. So... When people tell you, go ahead, take your boxes, put them out in the yard, let the bees clean them up, I say be very careful about that. You want to know what kind of prospects they have for other food because they'll leave that and go to your hives and wipe them out. So another tidbit, unrelated, a little bit of salt during the honey flow. Now I've heard other beekeepers say they put some salt in their water or they put some salt in a bird bath that the bees are visiting. 
He suggested the bees will take salt during the honey flow. One or two shakes from a salt shaker every day on the landing board and then occasionally every few weeks depending on what they're doing. He discovered this from his sheep. He was feeding his sheep and giving them salt licks and when they walked away they had dried salt on their lips and the bees were coming and taking the salt off the lips of the sheep. So he tried to do an experiment where he shaked the salt onto the landing board. Sometimes they brushed it off and other times they literally just came out and brought it right back in the hive. So here's the big one for me. This is this is the epitome and I guess I do have to blend the two segments I had planned. I was talking about make no mistakes. So in this conversation he was talking about beekeepers who spend far too much time inside their hives. And I mentioned this in the Let Em Be interview with Jason Bruns. His suggestion is four minutes, get in, state your business, and get off the phone, as my father used to say. And theoretically, if it's not 95 degrees outside, then you're messing with the brood chamber. You open that box, the whoosh of warm air goes by, and it takes him a day or so to recover. He did an anecdotal discovery or story about a beekeeper local to him who was opening the hives all the time, checking them. And he would try to encourage his beekeeper to close them up, and the beekeeper didn't think it was any big deal, but his hives never prospered. And the direct correlation was that he was wasting all the energy of their bees by constantly making them recover from reheating the hive. Now, I personally spend a lot of time out in my hive shooting videos and doing all that stuff for the YouTube channel, and I think I'm going to rethink that and be very careful about how much I have them open, and especially about the heat prospects of this. It's kind of funny that it doesn't dawn on me until I read this, and this discovery is that I put insulation boxes on to keep them warm through the winter, and then I come out in the spring when it gets above 70 degrees and open them up. There's still a 20-25 difference between a 70-degree day where we're out there in short sleeves and the bees have 95 degrees at the brood chamber and you're looking at frames and doing all that stuff. So, four minutes, get in, state your business, get out. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, I kind of let it slip. Before placement on a hive, heat your boxes at least to 70 degrees, especially in the springtime. Bring them in the house, let them warm up. Think about it this way. If you had a chamber that you were going to work with, and all of a sudden you had a new room, but you opened the door and the room was 60 degrees, 50 degrees, it wouldn't be very enticing to go in there. But if you had a heated box where it was nice and warm and you put that box right over top of the brood chamber, that would be inviting. So the suggestion here is, let a hive warm out a hive box before you put it on a hive warm to at least 70 degrees if not warmer bring it in the house let the wax warm up let the temperature of the wood warm up and then get it on the hive right away and give them a nice warm balmy place to work in context of what we were just discussing it sets the bees back quite a bit if they have to wait until it gets the temperature or that cool air mingles throughout the hive and it makes them uncomfortable so in this context you're giving them something warm that they can move right into 
and you're not setting them back by altering the ecosystem inside the hive by putting a cold chamber that's going to radiate cold into their warm space. Another point of interest, this is about color perception. They had this debate amongst the author and his father about whether the bees could or could not perceive color. They seemed to have these observations that indicate they could, so what they did was they tied a colored flag to the landing board to see if the bees would notice. And what they did observe is that the bees do see color, which is something we know already, and they started painting their hives. And it turned out they had less drifting from what they can tell. So the other discovery that they made while they were doing this is they tacked a cloth across the front of the landing board and let it hang down. And during the nectar flow, what they observed is bees coming in where the cloth wasn't, laden with honey, and tired out from foraging all day, would miss the landing and end up in the grass. In the evening, they'd get chilled, and they had a really difficult time firing up again and coming up to the hive and going inside. But what they discovered is this cloth hanging there not only was a colored landing board, but they were able to hit it and catch on to it, and they found that the bees would hang on to it for a while, get rested, and then walk up into the hive. So they came up with this idea of, during the nectar flow, extending the board on the front of the hive and painting it a color. What they had is a ready-made runway for the bees. And they found that far more bees landed right on this runway from the color. They extended about nine inches out from the front entrance, and none of them were falling into grass, and they had far more productivity in the hive. Very interesting what observation will lead to. So here's another one that's probably a duh thing, but I never never kind of gave it much thought because I'm not in the habit of pulling off frames that have partially drawn out honey. Typically if I see a frame that's partially capped and partially open, especially if it has young nectar in it, I just leave it there. I don't take it out. But what if you really did want to harvest that honey, what should you do? You take all your frames off the hive and you bring them into your area where you're going to harvest. And before you uncap anything, those hives that have nectar showing, spin them in your spinner. Put them in your extractor and extract that liquid out. And then feed it back to the bees. Then once you have all that unripened honey out of your comb, go ahead and take your capping knife and clean it off and extract the honey that has ripened and ready to go. Pretty simple tip, pretty common sense, pretty basic, but not something in front of you that you could possibly think of. So maybe you've uh, had an aha moment there like I did. So just a couple more here to go. There's this edict about moving a hive. We've talked about it a couple times on the topic of our podcast in the past. You hear two different laments, one two foot or two miles, three foot or three miles. I don't know which one is true anymore. But one of the tips we shared here in the past is that you can take a hive and move it to a new location in your apiary, but create some sort of obstruction in the front of the hive. And that would coerce the bees into thinking something happened. In his description, and maybe it's funny, is that uh, the common wisdom that we hear around our parts could have come from this book eons ago when it was first released. 
he bangs on the hive the night before, quote-unquote thoroughly jars them with sticks banging on the hive, making sure that every single bee in the entire hive is jostled. And then he spreads grass, twigs, and other debris across the landing. And when they come out in the morning, after they've been jostled, they do feel like something has happened, and therefore they will reorient. In his experience, what he suggested is that this works very well, although there will always be bees that will go back to the previous location. And for that, he sets up a shoebox, and they collect in the shoebox, and he goes out at night and brings them over and dumps them into the new hive location. And eventually they get it, or they fly off and go to some other hive. So in our advice in the past, you either move the hive two feet or two miles, three feet, three miles, whichever one you want to choose. In this case, you could move it across your yard or to a different apiary, and then you can wrap on the hive at night, you're going to do this in the dark when they're all in there and closed up and then give them some sort of debris or obstruction and they should be able to uh, reorient from their current location. Of course, another suggestion I've heard about this is that you can take the hive out into a yard somewhere, literally dump it out into the yard, knock all the bees off in the grass, move the hive, and they'll come back and find their hive in some way somebody will figure out where it went and they'll all come back to that location realizing that it got moved so that's an interesting approach too never tried that one but i've heard that that is a possible option so one of the other things that has been covered here on the podcast and i always thought it was kind of goofy but now in this one it reiterates it again so i think i really am going to try it and it was the concept of presenting yourself to the bees if your bees are out in an open field or some place where it's rather quiet, and hopefully they are for you, you might be the only thing moving when you get into the apiary and you instantly become something of a target or a threat. We've talked about this in the past where you go and you present yourself to the bees, you stand behind the hive, you talk to it so it recognizes your voice. I don't know if that's anamorphic, meaning you know, you're trying to suppose that they know who you are. But this person insists that the bees do come to know your tone and know your voice and know your movement and know your odor. And the other thing that he suggests is that you put something moving out in front of the hive so you're not the only thing moving and they come accustomed to something moving. So they suggested you could put a flag out there or something that easily moves in the breeze and the bees will constantly become aware of some sort of movement in their field of vision and when you walk in, you don't immediately become Sting Here, Charlie. So I thought that was an interesting reiteration of something I had heard before, where people talked about presenting yourself to your hive, talking to your hives, and creating something that moves so they get used to the presence of movement in their area and they don't necessarily focus on you as a target. So the last one is... Um, right along the lines of the conversation from Walt Wright that we just mentioned. And it, and it is what spurred me to go find that topic for the springtime, which is timing of super placement in the spring. Now, this person's in Santa Cruz, California, and they talked about their timing of when the nectar flow starts. And 
They literally went out at 2 in the morning and listened to the hive to find out whether the bees were storing and processing honey and things like that. That's the extent that these folks did their research. Their suggestion is the first warm day after February 20th, February 20th, when it won't be an extended winter. But you have to judge by the temps in your area as their determining factor. I'll use our temperatures here as an example. We've had this terminology that we've not heard in New Jersey, a polar vortex coming through the New York stations on the news. They have this discussion about a cold snap coming down from the Canada area, which is not uncommon this time of year. You typically get cold pushing down over the Ohio Valley, down through into Pennsylvania, and if it pushes hard enough, it displaces what's coming up in the Gulf Stream coming out of the southern area and it makes it cold here and our winter times are generally a yin and a yang sometimes that cold air coming out of British Columbia and areas of Canada push down and cover the east coast down to say Virginia South Carolina even further and other times the air comes in off of the west coast it sweeps down along Texas and the Florida Panhandle and then runs up the eastern coast and it pushes that Canada air up and we get a little taste of warm moist air some rain usually comes with that this winter has been a combination of those things some winters that is the predominant flow and other winters you generally have that air mass over Canada sitting through December and January we're looking at going into this cold air mass next week here in New Jersey where the temperatures are going to be between zero and freezing, depending on who you listen to. So back to the topic at hand, timing of super placement in the spring, when you expand that brood chamber, and when you give them room for more honey to keep them from swarming, is predicated on your temperatures and what's going on this year. If you do it too early and you create a chamber and they have to uh, cluster up, then the risk is you chill the brood and or shut the queen down because they can't maintain the temperature in that area. And if you think about it, if you create this situation where you break the seals, you put a chamber inside there in February, let's say, and you get a cold snap after that, you risk chilling the brood. And what do the bees have to do? They have to work harder to re-eat the hive and they consume their stores or they die and the, and the hive collapses. So there's a lot at stake here, and it's a very interesting, um, how do you say it, a poker game you have to play in the spring now, as I rationalize what my year is going to look like, and maybe you are thinking about this too, as to how you get your hive situated for the best workforce and to prevent them from swarming if that's your objective. So in the back of my mind, I had never really done any of this in the springtime. I hadn't contemplated any manipulations. What we typically did, and I've been wintering with two deeps and a medium super on top. And I know come mid-March, my bees have come up into that second box, but they're not into the chamber on the top. And I've been reversing them. And now what I think is I'm messing with the ecosystem in this swarming behavior that Walter Wright described, and maybe I'd be best to leave it alone. 
But the key to this is to ensure that you have that hunting dome over top of them in that medium and down into that second box when they get into winter so that they'll eat the honey to make room for the additional workforce for the swarm and then you intervene somewhere by making the brood chamber larger and they never get to that point where they backfill it down and create the swarm but they have this massive workforce that you could do stuff with in the spring whether it means you want to do splits with the brood or whether you want to add more honey boxes and hit that nectar flow so that they hammer away and make you a huge honey crop. All interesting things that make your head spin. So anyway, that's it for this book. I, I thought the book was interesting. I have last little paragraph or two to read when I get a spare moment. I'll finish those off, and if there's any other juicy tidbits in there, we'll bring it. But I'm done with my sticky notes here, so thanks for coming along for the ride. So here we roll into segment number four. I said it was going to be a long one. We're not even into round table yet. And uh, maybe you need an intermission, but I'm going to keep going. So mistakes were made. I love this time of year. I love sitting here in January, although the pressure starts to come after the holidays for whatever I didn't complete. But January brings the promise of a beautiful spring and ways to experiment all the things you've learned <laughs> <laughs> so I I find myself um, looking at an article that I found in a magazine called Edible Jersey. The Young Farmer's Diary, written by Helen Chandler. It said, what's the worst that can happen? And the line that I absolutely love from it is, I love laying it out all neat and clean in my mind. And what she's referring to is she goes through her review of what she's done the year prior when she was maintaining her garden that's what the topic is about how she didn't put her pole beans up quick enough or she didn't till the soil correctly or give enough room for a certain plant and how this year she's going to correct the errors in her ways i love that notion because it's the promissory note for us that we have another chance every spring as long as we have bees we can try it again and get better at what we do and as a novice beekeeper I like that idea because I know that I've made mistakes and I know that some of my experimenting for the sake of science as I've said on the podcast has resulted in less than stellar experiences but I'm okay with that because I've learned things so this year I might just extend the bottom board I will use robber cleats I am going to increase the yard that I have. I've already made the major steps to that. I'm so excited about spring, and all I'm nervous about is how much time I have to get everything I want to do. Every spring comes, and I get very ambitious about it. So what is my spring aspirations this year? Well, I've talked about a secondary yard, but quite frankly, I've found enough room on mine to put my hives up. So I'm going to go out and clear the grass and debris and whatever in the area that I found. I'm going to build a couple pads to put some hives out on. In the past, I've used my hive stands that I conjured up out of PVC. But I have some ideas for some additional types that I want. And I have a welder on loan in my garage. So I was thinking about making some metal ones instead of PVC to see how that works. And I want to build a wary hive 
and my long hive, my top bar hive is ready to go except for a couple minor things to go. I've been painting my hives and I'm waiting for it to get warm so I can get back out and paint everything that I have. For 20 for 2013, one of my objectives was to replace my comb. Um, yeah, I did a lot of that, but this year I want to do something a little bit differently. I'm ready to go foundationless. And I think what I'm going to do is plan every other frame with foundation, let them build it out, and put foundationless frames in between those, and then subsequently pull the foundation frames out. I'm on my ever quest to remove all old comb within reason. So I've been thinking about this and knowing that old comb is one of those things that is part of the ecosystem and if you're pulling it out all the time you have to be careful about changing the pheromones and scents and things like that inside the hive. So I think I'll be judicious about that and I'd love to have that thought that you know there would be fresh vigorous comb in there all the time but not so much that it's not the right answer you want to make sure that you leave enough brood comb in place that it still smells like comb so to speak my conversation with jason bruns was uh very fascinating to me and he has me thinking about how to build swarm hives i don't have any I don't have any extra boxes laying around, any old junky boxes. Uh, anything that I had old and junky, I cut up and made nukes out of them because the corners were rotted and broken and they make good nukes, as I've explained in previous episodes. So after reharvesting the handholds, I have nothing to leverage. So I was thinking, how do you use something cheap like a trash can that you could buy from Home Depot for 10 bucks, put a lid on it, put a hole in it, strap it to a large plank, put that to a tree, looking at the way Jason did it. So Jason, yep, you got the juices thinking that I need to add that as a to-do here in the springtime and uh, consider putting some swarm traps up. And also going back and putting my name on the swarm list, which I've never done before. I have to believe, I want to believe, that this year is going to be the year of the swarms because last year didn't seem like it was. So, mistakes were made, but the promise of a new spring is great, and everything is fresh, the grass is green, the plants have beautiful flowers, the trees are budding, and I avoided the worst. My hives didn't die. I still have bees out there, and I have uh, something to work with, so I'm really excited about getting to spring, and hopefully you too are becoming organized and when I say organize this year, I think I'm literally going to build a plan, project plan, write something out, a to-do list, whatever form it's going to come in. I'm funny this way is I've, I've done really good this spring uh, at home, personally, cleaning my files out. I've been taking old, um, yeah, photo albums, <laughs> that's what you call them. <laughs> old photo albums with scanning and scanning and scanning and making them digital and getting rid of the photo albums and cleaning up old books and getting rid of old paperwork and cleaning out last year's bills and replacing them with the fresh stuff so I know what my bank accounts are and getting my passwords changed and all that stuff so 
please come live with me. <laughs> come live this vicarious life with me. Come come live the dream and become all that you can be and enjoy the clean, exciting chance that spring brings. I, I'll stop. I'm getting a little silly. It's a little bit late, but uh, I think you know what place I'm in right now. I'm really, really jazzed and excited about spring. Okay, let's let's hop over to round table and wrap this thing up. For round table number one, I'm really fortunate in the context that I get a lot of feedback from folks. Through the Facebook page, through email from listeners, people responding back from the podcast, from the YouTube channel, people writing comments about the videos. And one such comment came through recently. The Northwest YouTube channel has hundred something videos and it's funny because some of the even the older stuff people are watching and commenting on something that's been out there and I've long since forgot what the topic of the video was but recently someone posted something about this session we did one of the springs where we were talking about spring management and doing splits and at 53 minutes and 35 seconds or something like that I had a frame in my hand and I wanted to get some bees out of the way and I picked the frame up and just innocently did a little puff on the frame to blow some bees out of the way. And the person wrote back in the comments a long response about how that's not the right thing to do. Most people would go, hmm, why do you got to call me out for that? But me, I love it. <laughs> you know how I am. If you've listened to the past episodes, I like feedback. I like that. You know, I don't mind being corrected, and this particular topic is not rocket science. He went on to explain that the bees would encounter a bear. One of the things they'd get is that breath of the bear breathing on the comb and the carbon dioxide coming off their breath, and we have the same thing. It stands to reason that's like, that's brilliant. It's so simple, but, but a lesson learned, you know? So thanks to the poster, he goes by the name of Colorado Kev, for taking the time to share the wisdom. That's what I think this community of beekeeping is all about. It's the simple little things. And I know sometime out in the summer I'll have a hive out open and I'll have a frame in front of me and I'll be talking to somebody or looking at it or talking in the podcast and I'll make sure that I don't ever blow the bees um, away from an area. And his observation was when I blew on it, the bees all launched and all of a sudden there were all these bees in the air. And when I watched the video, he was right. So kudos to him for calling me out i appreciate that and i've learned a little something so round table number two speaking of feedback i received a side note from uh, tim ives about a statement made in the interview with jason Bruns. that was in uh, episode number 49 one back tim shared a correction and i wanted to circle back and make sure that the information got passed along so all is correct uh, I'm not sure who made the comment, me or Jason, somewhere in there shared that Tim does walk-away splits. Uh, to be frank, I don't remember the detail in the interview, but the correction is that Tim does timed splits using capped swarm cells. He's not doing walk-away splits. For those uninclined that don't know what a walk-away split is, is you just take frames out of your hive that have larvae that's two or less days old and you put them aside and the nurse bees that are with them will make new new queens and you just walk away that's all there is to it 
what Tim suggested is that he's taking the time to use or make splits using capped swarm cells. And uh, this goes hand in hand with some of the discussion we had when the bees are ready to make swarms. One of the things they do is they have the best genetic soup going because they want to propagate the species. And uh, what Tim's uh, share was is that when the bees make their own replacement queens in preparation for this, they make the best queens. It's under their own terms. And we couldn't agree more there, Tim. So thanks for taking the time to let us know. And uh, we'll make sure that everybody makes uh, the right conclusion on that, that walkaway splits is not the answer for that. For roundtable number three, I wanted to talk about this little booklet that I have in my hand. It's about a four inch by six inch spiral bound booklet. The title of it is Major Flowers Important to Honeybees in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic States. It's authored by D. Samataro and A. Hartman, or Harmon, sorry about that. I think this is put out by Marrick or Penn State, although I'm sorry I can't remember where the source was. I was able to pick this up along the way. What it has in it is spring flowers, summer, and autumn flowers, and it has a list of about 40 plants or so in this region that are important to us. Uh, this is a valuable resource if you have the opportunity to find something like this. And there's all kinds of guides out on the internet for plants and when they bloom and so on. The usefulness of this one is it provides you with a page of pictures of the plant. So in this case, I'm looking at the first entry, which is willows. There's four different plants, apparently four different um, maturity of, of growth on the plant, what it looks like, what the, what the uh, flowers look like. And then it has a description of the plant with a little note on the bottom. And every one of them is coated with this waxy coating that would probably let you write on them that allows you to capture the bloom date in your area. So the interesting concept of this is it tells you a bunch of different facets about the plant itself, uh, what it is, what its Latin name is, the range, the habitat, the time of bloom, the value, and in this case willows are valuable for pollen and nectar, uh, what the pollen color looks like, and then it has facts about the actual plant. In the case of this, it's in a small handheld format, so you can take it out into the field, look at the various plants, and easily see them. So let me go through one, which is common even in my yard, I see it, and it's the first sign for us of a beautiful spring. It's called skunk cabbage, isn't that funny? It shows you a picture of a closed flower and an open flower. The ranges throughout the region that this book covers and it is a very early spring plant, so that's why it's really valuable to us. Uh, damp soil in the woods, wetlands, and swamps. If you've listened to what I've said, I live on a wooded lot, and we have some moss and, and a creek running through one side of the property, and we typically find the skunk cabbage over there. It blooms from February to May, and before the leaves appear, so that's an interesting thing pale yellow in color so typically late january early february all the pollen coming into the hives is this pale yellow color 
almost like if you mixed um, sugar and what is it that gives it the pale yellow? I'm drawing a blank, so I'll leave it be. But it's a very light lemon chiffon kind of color. So in the other category, it says important early food source for brood rearing. Flowers appear before the leaves and are enclosed in a shell-like purple mottled spath. Leaves are large, green, and cabbage-like. The odor of crushed leaves gives the plant its name. Plant is able to generate heat thermogenesis. That was a topic we covered recently on the podcast. And pollinators have been seen warming up in the spathe on cold days. It's protected in Tennessee, and it's a native plant. So this is the time of year in the next couple of weeks that you should start to see skunk cabbage push through the ground, and we always look forward to them opening up. So going back to the theme of the episode, the bees are in there right now, and depending on whether it's cold or you get occasional warm days where it's 45, 55, some 60 degree days unseasonably warm, they start their operation at this time. The queen's laying inside the chamber, inside the cluster, and the population hopefully has enough stores and they start to grow. And they may venture out and start foraging in the next couple of weeks and picking up some pollen, which of course is what they need in order to grow brood. So if you go out and start looking at the skunk cabbage, you can believe that if they're harvesting on that, this is the time of year where they're starting to grow those two batches of bees and getting prepared, prepared to have the swarm issue and leave the master colony behind. And um, this is what they're going to use to feed the drones that they're going to create for that premise. And the drones are going to get started before they do the queen cells. So all this kind of ties together. And when you start seeing them having the opportunity to see something that comes out very early, like skunk cabbage, it becomes all that more important to know what your foraging sources are. And this is an invaluable resource. I came across this book last year at the EAS conference. It was for sale at the bee culture table. But I don't think it was widely distributed to the public. Uh, someone from the our local area bought a bunch of these books and I bought one off of them. I believe it's going to be available out on the internet. You can order it from different sources. It was going to be somewhere between 15 and $20. I think I paid 15 or 16 for the version that I have. It's a little bit expensive, but it's extremely well made and you're helping to support a resource that hopefully will be revisioned year after year and become a steady resource for beekeepers in this region. I did find a copy of it for sale for $15.50 U.S. at BetterBee, which is BetterBee.com. You can find it. So uh, do a search for it. You'll find it. Or ask your local supplier to find it, and they can contact it. On the back, there's resources for Merrick and uh, pollen.usda.gov, plants.usda.gov. So those are a couple other resources you could potentially check out and i'm sure there's a lot of resources out on the web but uh, this is definitely worth taking a look at roundtable number four i wanted to make a couple comments about uh, listener mail 
It's something about this time of year in January. A lot of folks, I guess, get devices over the holiday season or for whatever reason decide they're going to take some of their leisure time over the holidays to take a look and see if they can find podcasts on beekeeping. And I also get people who might have a little more time on their hands write me off a note, so I appreciate that. I always like reading these emails from folks who discover me. A lot of them share stories about what they have, what they like in our episodes, and uh, comments about what they have going on. Um, I was amused by one from Timothy, and I'll say his last name, hopefully I pronounce it right, Carriker, K-A-R-R-I-K-E-R. He chose randomly number 43 and if you remember the embarrassing moment where I sang a Todd Rangren call uh, to open the a Todd Rangren song to open it up he says he knew he was in the right place which kind of made me chuckle Tim goes on to say he's in the hills of North Carolina and uh, got into beekeeping I think about four years ago and has a brother-in-law who keeps bees and They have a couple of hives for the last 40 years or so at his brother-in-law's place, if I read this right. They've never been medicated or fed, and he doesn't even use smoke anymore. So it would be interesting to see how his hives do when placed over there, if I get that story right. Uh, Always fascinating to hear from beekeepers who run that principle, and I have one in my hometown who used to say, I never do anything with my hives. They're just out in the yard. (laughs) So the let them be thing, Jason. Just, just saying. Uh, I got an email recently from someone named Jose, who calls himself Pablo. He's writing from, yeah, Belfast in North Ireland. Very interesting. What uh, he was commenting on how queen management is, and one of the things that's funny about what people write me, he's listening to my podcast from 2010. That seems so long ago, and he's trying to catch up. So. He wrote some commentary about a topic back then about determining a new queen and when to introduce one and whether it's queen right, queen less, brood less, and all of that stuff. So always fascinating, as I said before, even with the videos that we post when someone comes back to a topic that has long since passed me by, I tend to go back and look at them to see what they were talking about. He was also interested in some of the commentary we've had recently about using nucleus hives and that he was doing some of that also so pablo if you're listening tell sonia that uh i give you permission to put those nucleuses out in your yard i i think you need to go that direction so you tell her she has my stamp of approval and that she should consider this as uh you're trying to figure out what your operations are going to be i have another listener who just wrote in to say he enjoyed it his name is gerald miller uh, it's very funny to, to listen to the one comment. He's from Lakewood, Washington. He has 10 hives, and this spring will be his third season. What he said is, I wish they were longer. <laughs> so there's not many people, I think, write me and say, you know, your podcasts aren't long enough. So thanks, Gerald, for that. I, I appreciate that, uh, especially since this one's so long. We're running on almost two hours here, so... Um, This one's for you, Gerald. And then last but least, um, some beekeepers or or listeners come back frequently, and I appreciate that they've been with me for a long time. John Ike is one of those. Mike Vines out of Tennessee is another. Uh, Steve Bucknocki is a 
uh, somebody who's written in a number of occasions and I've had other listeners who've been with me from the beginning and I do appreciate your support. Uh, certainly get to chat with Gary Fawcett a lot from the Kiwi Monobuzz that I mentioned earlier and uh, consider him a friend and, and every once in a while we just ring each other up on Skype and have a little chat and see what's going on in our neck of the woods as he's on the other side of the world and his beekeeping season is a different interest than ours because uh, we're we're coming out of winter and I think he's going into winter or coming out of summer or whatever is going on over there so um, always interesting to talk to Gary and and listen to what he has going on over there and uh, I do listen to his podcast and listen to them talk about Varroa and they lament about how the U.S. beekeepers do what we do in dealing with small hive beetles and sometimes um, no offense Gary it's comical to hear what you think about what happens over here and uh, I'm sure that there are plenty of things to laugh about the way we keep bees over here in the United States and it all keeps it light and interesting and uh, just listen to Gary's podcast recently um, had someone out of California Los Angeles to be exact doing uh, swarm captures and doing cutouts and things like that it's a pretty fascinating episode so if you have a little bit of time head on over there and take a listen to that one he did a really good job uh, with that interview a lot of interesting stuff coming out of that beekeeper who's a pretty young guy but uh, sounds like he's got it going on and uh, always interesting how Gary finds these folks he's got a thriving network over there for Kiwi Mana a lot of blog he's selling equipment he's making equipment he's selling bees and doing all that stuff he's very industrious so hats off to you Gary I wish I had all that energy <laughs> but uh you know you, you could subscribe to his facebook channel and, and other stuff and he's constantly uh providing a lot of value to all the beekeepers listening over there and uh certainly is a i i say this with all affinity a fan over here because he's uh often asking me questions about things we present and we have a good dialogue going so uh if you get a chance support him he and margaret do a great job over there so that being said, uh, sometimes people are looking for podcasts. Another person I could recommend is Phil Chandler. Um, Phil has a lot of videos that he also produces along with his thing. He's biobees.com. Phil's written a book and uh, is known f- far and wide for his uh, organic beekeeping, if that's the right word. Uh, he'd probably cringe at that description, but uh, he does things in natural ways. He's a top bar uh, aficionado. He knows that inside and out and uh, you could find a lot of information about that um, into a lot of environmental topics and um, he's in the UK and and is very active and proactive over there so another one I could recommend is biobees.com I know I've listened in the past to Dave and Sherry Burns I think Dave has got something else going on there was um Another podcast he was affiliated with where they were doing some teaching. I've lost track of what it was. You could probably fire up a search engine and look up Dave Burns and see what he's up to. The Wildlife Pro Network was doing a number of things on beekeeping at a period of time. Uh, unfortunately, I believe the person who was the uh, pin pinpoint person that was doing all that has recently passed, if I remember correctly, and uh, hopefully they'll continue that going. Uh, Rob something, I believe, was his name. Again, uh, listened a couple of years ago to that. 
they seem to have stopped producing and I've gone back a couple times and looked and every once in a while I find something. Uh, you could find beekeeping podcasts. A lot of them come and then they go away. Uh, I try constantly looking for um, subject matter on this and I've recommended it a couple different ones over time. So if you know of any new ones or, or uh, beekeeping podcasts that you want to share with other listeners, please feel free to post over to the Facebook or let me know. And I'll pass it on as I'm always looking for stuff to listen to. So I mentioned on the outset that this was going to be a jam-packed show. And I had a couple other topics. But except for Gerald, everybody else is probably yelling uncle right now. So let me uh, bring one more to the party here. And then we'll close it down and I'll move those to another episode. I was recently listening to a recording out of the American Beekeeping Federation Conference. I think it was from 2013. It was Greg Hunt who was uh, talking on a topic about varroa-sensitive hygiene. They did an interesting experiment where they were taking bees from different colonies, and they were placing a varroa on them, and they were timing how long it took for the bee to react to the varroa, and specifically whether it would try to groom and get it off. Now, so the thing that they discovered is they were looking at certain bees that behaved in a varroa-sensitive way, and if they did grooming, maybe they had some gene that the other bees didn't. So they did samples and tests, and I'll cut to the chase given the timing. They were able to find something of interest in this. And what they found is a, a behavior pattern that is shown up in other tests with mice, for example. But what they found is it had something to do with the brain activities and in this particular gene or uh, marker that they found, it's one of the things that if the marker was suppressed in mice, the mice would react by doing excessive grooming to the point where they rub their fur off. So isn't that interesting? Varroa-sensitive hygiene in bees did not or could potentially be tied to some sort of suppression of a gene that has to do with the brain. And nothing to do with they are varroa hate them and, and groom themselves that way. So the other discussion that they had as part of this podcast was how the bees react to chewing on mites. And I think the actual topic of the talk was bees that bite. And they talked about the dynamics of how they measured different bees that bit and they literally counted all the varroa that were falling on the board and inspecting them to see if the legs were chewed off and things like that. And they talked about how you gas the hive so that you can count the varroa inside the hive versus the one on the bottom board versus ones that could have potentially escaped to find out the percentage of bees that were bitten by a specific hive. And then they would determine whether this one had genes for the ability to bite mites all in the guise of trying to find if there was some breeding mechanism that you could do to breed better bees for varroa sensitive hygiene or bees that attack varroa and you know there is this aspect that we could control the varroa by doing what we do but if the bees could do it themselves by literally biting the legs off and biting the mites then that would be uh, some sort of trait we'd really like to see there was an interesting uh, suggestion toward the end of the interview where someone mentioned that Japanese bees are 
or the uh, Asian bees, not Japanese. The Asian bees were known to bite um, mites better or treat them differently. They had evolved differently. And maybe they could do a, could, a cross between the European bees that we have and the Asian bees in the gene matrix and see if there's something in the gene pool that they could find the trigger for this. So in the end, I, I don't think they came to any great conclusion. They were suggesting that they were still working on this. And there was a lot of interesting talk throughout the session about how they went about this and what they were doing in order to make the conclusions there was a hint of they weren't quite sure if they were 100% accurate on these things but um, I think what they were doing seemed reasonable enough so instead of going into detail given the lateness of this I'll provide a link to that and uh, maybe you can take time and download that mp3 and give it a listen it's not too long I think it's like 22 minutes or so um, I warn you the front of the recording for whatever reason they were messing around the room they couldn't get the recording or whatever so you probably um, can can skip the first seven minutes of it and listen to the last 22 minutes of the 30 minute recording so uh, we'll provide a link to that on our show notes but interesting stuff where people are looking at every angle to see what they can do to conquer our pest, the Varroa mite. And oh, wait a minute. I do have one more thing to bring that I want to put in this episode. I covered something related to the mites that you could put inside the hive. The small mites that actually feed on the Varroa mite in an episode or two back. And I read something recently where someone ordered those and put them inside their hive and they made no effect. In fact, one of the things they said is there's not ecosystem for those little mites to stay in the hive. And even though they applied them as instructed, put them in the hives, they generally didn't do much and they just left the hive and there was really no impact to the Varroa. That was a single beekeeper's experiment reporting back to a greater experiment of a bunch of people working on those. But that promising prospect, at least in this beekeeper's experience, is one of the scientists reporting back. Uh, the news was not good there. If you missed this, I think it was one or two episodes ago, we talked about this little mite that they use in the United States. You could literally buy it in a package. And they put them for hermit crabs, and uh, they use them in nurseries for spiders to control these things. And in nature, the expectation is these little mites are supposed to be there but because we're putting a carocytes or changing things inside the ecosystem of the hive from what they were intended to have when they lived in a tree these um these little mites aren't present in our ecosystems so you can introduce them and they show that you know you put these in a hive and they run right over and start chewing and eating the legs off the bottom of a varroa mite which is so satisfying to a beekeeper uh, another thing about this um, prospect is that people are talking about putting some sort of uh, bottom in a hive that allows detrius and debris to collect to potentially give a home for these mites to return. I watched a video from um, the BioBees uh, website that I talked about recently, Phil Chandler, uh, just a couple minutes ago. He built a hive where he added an attachment to a top bar hive on the bottom and put debris in the bottom 
that would not allow small hive beetles and whatever in there, but could potentially foster this ecosystem where mites would come back. And he was running different experiments between this and other form factors to, to see if maybe there was some premise in this. It sounded like it was a work in progress. I don't know if there was uh, any point in, in conclusions from that, but this is what he was trying in terms of what, what people were talking about, that a tree where the bees would live would have the bottom of the cavity that they're in where everything would fall and collect and create this little crumb layer on the bottom where bacteria and mites and other spiders and earwigs and things like that could live and potentially be harmonious to the bees inside he was creating that type of ecosystem in the bottom of his hives it also had something to do if i remember correctly with uh, trapping moisture in the bottom there and creating this moist environment that could potentially change the dryness and and the way the ecosystem works inside the hive so uh, something Phil Chandler was working on and again interested in following up on that it was one of his videos and I believe it was on biobees.com so we're just about two hours in I guess it's time to wrap it up I did want to uh, pass along one other note Nick Jordan sent me a note from the UK there was a national honey show over there and they had Mike Palmer there and Mike did a couple uh, videos. I'm not sure if I mentioned this, so I'm going to make sure I put it in there. Definitely worth looking at. So if you go to youtube.com and look for the National Honey Show, they have four videos posted out of there. One of them is the Sustainable Apiary by Mike Palmer. It's very similar to the video that I mentioned a couple episodes back in the philosophies of Mike Palmer, which everybody should become acquainted with. I mentioned four videos. There's three other ones out there. Keeping Bees in Frozen North America. And if you remember where Mike is, he's in Maine or Vermont, right up alongside the Canada border. Uh, Queen Rearing in the Sustainable Apiary and Origins and Evolutionary History. Let me read that again. Origins and Evolutionary History of the Honeybee. All of them run about an hour, an hour and change. If you wanted to take a look at them, there's certainly some good things to do on a weeknight when you got a little time or a weekend where you want to uh, take a look. Mike Palmer, always interesting to listen to. So with that, I guess we'll close the episode out. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. Again, our website, www.bkcorner.org. You could send me a note, Kevin at bkcorner.org dot org and uh, we'll do our best to get back to you got a couple things in the hopper for the next episode it'll probably be a week or two it's uh, soccer season here in the united states at least for us we're going to be opening up spring registration so i'm going to have my hands full a little bit getting that up and running but uh, i promise i'll be working on stuff and i'll be back in short order thanks everybody for listening we're going to close it out until next time be well and thank you for listening to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast.